Welcome, future doctors, to another episode of the Future Minority Doctor Podcast with Dr. Sulma and Marina, where we bring you conversations to empower and inspire you to contribute to your community and the world by becoming a doctor. Hello, everyone. Thanks for taking the time to tune in today. We have a very special episode for you today. It's the first of what we hope will be many inspiring interviews with minority doctors. Our goal is to release about one full episode per month or about every third episode. We want you to learn from and be inspired by hearing the stories of other minority doctors. Our hope is that you will see aspects of your own background and struggles mirrored in at least some of their stories so that you can stay motivated on your own path to becoming a doctor. Remember, there are as many paths to becoming a doctor as there are doctors. No two stories are exactly the same. Your story will be unique, and one day we hope you can share it and inspire others to follow in your footsteps. Our guest today is Dr. Raymond Berdugo. He is a board-certified family medicine doctor currently practicing in San Diego, California. He was born in Fresno and raised in Oceanside, California. He earned a Bachelor's of Science in Biology with a minor in Spanish from Stanford University, a medical degree from UC San Diego School of Medicine, and completed his residency training in family medicine at the Kaiser Permanente Los Angeles Medical Center. His goal as a doctor is to use evidence-based medicine to help his patients improve their health, and he is a strong believer in the power of nutrition and exercise as medicine. He loves spending time with his wife and family, and he has many hobbies, some of which he'll talk about in our interview today. We hope you learned something and are inspired from hearing Dr. Berdugo share his story today. All right, right. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, can you tell us a little bit about what kind of physician you are and how long you've been practicing? Sure. My name is Dr. Ray Berdugo. I practice family medicine in San Diego, and I've been in practice for seven years. Excellent. Tell us a little bit about what a typical workday looks like for you, you know, from the time you get into the office to the time you go home. What are the kind of things you're doing all day long? Sure. So firstly, family medicine, you know, we have a wide range of things that we can do. We're trained to treat pregnancy. We're trained in deliveries. We're trained for pediatrics and all the way through geriatric care and end of life. We're also trained in hospital medicine and clinic. I've chosen to uh, focus in on clinic only and actually focusing in on adults. So what I see in clinic day to day is primary care, also a wide variety of things, even though I did narrow my scope. Um, it could be something such as broken bones, diabetes, heart disease, um, you know, warts on the skin. Uh, basically, if you have it, I can help treat it. Excellent. I'm curious, what made you choose family medicine as a specialty? So my biggest factor in choosing family medicine was uh, in the name itself. Uh, you know, family really, you know, talks about being able to see multiple ages and multiple generations and take care of the entire family through their life and long term uh, in their care. And even though I've limited my practice to 18 and up, I still actually do see families and they're just a, a bit, you know, in the adult range of population. So, you know, I have uh, grandfathers, fathers and their sons. I have, um, you know, um, 
couples, uh, you know, either male and female or male and male and female and female, um, so, and their children. And so uh, I'm able to see all adults um, throughout their life. Very cool. So I'm curious, what's the oldest patient you've treated? My oldest patient was 102. Oh my goodness, that's impressive. <laughs> so uh, are there are there particular things that you really like to see in clinic? Like are there particular conditions that you feel you're particularly good at treating? One thing that we do very, very well in family medicine is preventive care and chronic disease. And a specific passion of mine is teaching people about nutrition and how it relates to chronic diseases. Of the top 15 things that kill us in the United States, only one does not have strong ties with nutrition, and that's number six on the list, and that's accidents. So our number one killer, heart disease, strokes, diabetes, high blood pressure, cancers even, and dementia even, all of these things have really strong ties with nutrition. And my ability to inform patients about this and give them the resources to learn more and empower them to change their own habits to help reduce their risk is where we really thrive in family medicine. Excellent. I think nutrition is so important. Like you say, it has ties to so many chronic diseases. Can you think of a particular patient that you can remember where counseling about nutrition or nutritional counseling really made a difference in their life or in their condition? So I'm happy to say that I have quite a few that have taken the advice and made positive changes to halt and reverse their diabetes, um, as well as other chronic conditions, lose weight. Um, and, you know, even aside from nutrition itself, coming off of alcohol and coming off of uh, cigarettes, you know, those things by themselves as well, you know, do a great, um, you know, positive effect on longevity and health and reducing risk. But the one patient that sticks out to me most is somebody that I saw within my first few months of being a doctor and practicing. And uh, this particular patient was in her 40s, and she was on 16 units of insulin twice daily for her diabetes. We had our discussion about nutrition, and she really took it to heart. She watched the documentaries, she read the books that I recommended, and she began to drastically change her health. And when I saw her next, just a couple months later, um, she had actually done so many good changes that her blood sugar was going way too low, even though she had reduced her insulin down to only about two to four units twice a day. And looking at her numbers, I told her she could come off of insulin entirely. And it's been seven years and she's still off of insulin with good blood sugar since that first visit. That's wonderful. And that's interesting you mentioned that because I think a lot of people don't realize that diabetes, at least type 2 diabetes, is largely reversible. In your experience, is that true? It's most definitely true. And even if it has progressed to the point where the, the pancreas, which produces the hormone insulin that we need to put sugar into our muscles, even if type 2 diabetes has progressed actually to type 1, where the body doesn't make insulin anymore, even uh -huh. then, and even for type 1, when they change their diet, you can see drastic reduction in the amount of insulin that's needed. So 
even if you're not able to reverse it completely, you can at least take less medicine and be healthier overall. That's fascinating. So let's um, back up a little bit. And I'd love to hear something about your upbringing and your background. Tell us what your childhood was like. So I was born to teenage parents in the barrios of Fresno. My mom and dad uh, were very young. My mom was 16 and my dad was 18. And before they got pregnant with me, um, they were running in the wrong circles. Um, they were basically cholos and if not directly involved in gangs, at least uh, you know involved um, on the periphery of gangs. And uh, thankfully, when they did find out that you know they were going to have me, they began to change their life and they began to study hard. And uh, thankfully, they both graduated high school. My dad went into the Marine Corps, and that provided a, a stable uh, home and a stable income. And my mom went to actually four different community colleges before being able to transfer to San Diego State University, eventually getting her master's degree in school psychology. And so throughout my upbringing, they really taught me lessons of hard work and the importance of education, the importance of tradition and family, and giving back to your community. So as I was learning all of these lessons going growing up and then starting to learn more in school around middle school age and uh, specifically when I started freshman year of high school, biology really caught my attention and I loved anatomy and I loved the drawings of Leonardo da Vinci and that passion for science and biology. I took that and said, I, how can I take this passion and turn it into something that would benefit others. And that's when I came across the idea of becoming a doctor, because I said, oh my gosh, you have to know so much science to be a doctor. And what do doctors do all day but help people? So it was really freshman year of high school where I made the decision that I wanted to become a doctor. Interesting. Out of curiosity, did you know any doctors or anybody in the healthcare field? around that time? Around the time that I made the decision, I did not. Towards later in high school, one of my uncles married uh, someone who was a radiology technician, and I got to shadow her in the emergency department and see a couple of procedures, and it really just strengthened my desire to become a doctor, but I am the first doctor in my family. Wonderful. So you went off to college, presumably, and tell us how that desire to become a doctor evolved during college. Right. So, you know, I studied really hard in, in middle school, even, um, so that I, because I knew that I needed to get good grades to become a doctor. Um, I didn't know too much about it at that point, but I knew that I needed to study hard and get good grades. And doing that in middle school allowed me to get into higher classes uh, for advanced placement in high school. I also did band and I also volunteered uh, in my community and I also did traditional Aztec dancing. Um, all of that and the hard studying, it allowed me to get really good grades and become salutatorian with straight A's. And I got into uh, a few different colleges, um, but I chose to go to Stanford University. And while I was there, 
you know, taking the pre-medical courses and further expanding my mind and all the other different classes and playing mariachi, um, you know, it really just solidified again that I had the passion for biology and that I wanted to use this passion to help others. I also did volunteer with a program called Scope MIP, which was shadowing for clinical opportunity and pre-medical education medical interpreters program, where I actually helped to interpret between doctors and patients in an emergency room uh, that was local. That's great. So typically, the pre-med years during college can be really competitive. It can be really hard. That's the stage at which a lot of people who think they want to be doctors going into college start to struggle, start to realize how hard it's going to be, and some of them unfortunately drop out. So what kept you going through through the challenges of pre-med courses? So yes, it is extremely challenging, extremely difficult, um, but it is very worth it. The thing that has that kept me going through all of my training years and even now is that desire to serve others and to to be someone in the community that others could look to because we definitely, definitely need more uh, Latino doctors. We need more black doctors. We need more people of color in general uh, becoming doctors. Um, We're not represented uh, in the field as we are in the population and representation definitely matters. Thankfully, I was able to have a couple of great mentors um, going through my training. And um, if they hadn't been there, and been Latino themselves, um, it, it might have been a lot harder. Um, it was not easy, but that's what really kept me going is knowing that I could make it because I saw others who made it that were coming from similar backgrounds. And I knew that if I studied hard enough and if I didn't quit, that I'd be able to do it. Excellent. So you finished college, and did you go immediately to medical school after that? I did not. So. In college, I realized that I actually had more time and you didn't have to go straight in to your training. So I took a year off on purpose and I decided that I wanted to enjoy my senior year of college and not worry about studying for that big test called the MCAT. And I wanted to take some time, get a little bit of world experience, get a little bit of a break before going into medical school and also allow plenty of time for intensive studying for that very big, important test. So I took a year off between. All right. So tell tell us a little bit about the application process. What was it like applying to medical schools? So applying to medical school, you know, you definitely have to have all of what are called prerequisitions, which means what's required before you apply. Um, So when you're in college, You definitely have to make sure that you're taking all of the right courses that the medical schools want you to, to make sure you have a solid base, a solid foundation in the sciences. And, you know, thankfully at Stanford, they have their pre-medical curriculum, which is what they call it. And they make sure that you're hitting all of those courses as long as you follow it through. So even before college, though, going through high school, you need to make sure that you're doing those prerequisitions for college. So 
making sure that you know who your counselor is and making sure that you're checking the schools that you want to go to and checking off all those classes. That's what you need to do to make sure that you don't have to repeat anything or have to take another year, you know, because you forgot to take a class. So going through college, same thing uh, for those prerequisites for medical school. And then the MCAT test is a huge, huge one that you have to have and have to have a good score on to be competitive. And then there's a whole application process. Yeah, do your best. Gotcha. Did you apply to a lot of schools throughout the country or were there was there a particular geographic location you wanted to stay in? I knew that I wanted to stay close to home for medical school. Um, there was one place I applied to out of state, um, but all the rest were in California. And I am from California. My family's in Oceanside down in San Diego. Great. So you went to UC San Diego School of Medicine, so you were able to stay pretty close to your family. What was medical school like? Medical school definitely will test you. It is uh, very rigorous, which means, um, you know, they're, it's very detail-oriented and it, it is heavily, heavily detailed, okay? And the, the reason for that is very good. You know, if you're going to be a doctor and you're going to help take care of people and sometimes literally their lives are going to be in your hands, you want to know that you have the best education possible, the best knowledge, and that you're coming um, with all of that in your pocket to be able to help them the best that you can. So medical school is very difficult, and um, but with good reason. What are some of the things that you remember, some of the ups and downs of medical school? Some of the downs, of course, are that there's long hours and lots of studying. <laughs> um, but the ups are definitely, definitely worth it. As soon as you start to actually interact with patients and put your knowledge um, into practice, you really start to see why the classes are so detailed and you see why it's so important that you really know what you're doing and allowing yourself to fully embrace all of that knowledge so that you can take it and serve others. That really is what begins to be the ups of medical school. At the first, you know, couple of years, you definitely feel uh, like it's overwhelming. You feel like you're a little lost. Uh, a lot of people feel like you're never going to be able to learn it all. And then thankfully, in the third and fourth years, uh, you start to really solidify your knowledge. You start to put it into practice and you start to see, wow, everything actually does fit together and actually does make sense. And I can actually use this to help people. And it's a really beautiful thing to see how those initial struggles begin to blossom into direct service. I'm curious, is there a particular class or a particular rotation during medical school that you really, really enjoyed? One of my favorite rotations was uh, what's called a longitudinal rotation, and it's uh, the one that I did with family medicine. I shadowed uh, a wonderful doctor who became my mentor, uh, Dr. David Barra, and he is Mexican-American like myself. We're Chicanos. He thankfully, uh, he had also went to Stanford. Um, and he was in family medicine. So it was, uh, he had been where I had been, you know, we're, we're the same culture and, and 
wanting to serve the same patient population. And he was in an organization that I wanted to work with. So that was a really amazing experience. And the fact that it was longitudinal, meaning that it wasn't just, you know, a block of time, it was actually throughout a whole year where I would go once a week or every couple of weeks to see patients in a family medicine clinic uh, with him. Um, that was really the highlight of my medical school. Yeah, you mentioned that you have a particular interest in nutrition as it relates to health. When is it that that interest began to develop? So I say initially in middle school, I took an interest in nutrition first um, because I actually really liked uh, Arnold Schwarzenegger movies. Uh And uh, I picked up a book that he had written called The Encyclopedia of Bodybuilding. Um, And that book itself, you know, is is extremely thick and they say that you can get muscles just by carrying it around. Uh So, uh, So I started to learn about nutrition through that. Um, and when I, when I really though, uh, intensely started studying it, um, was, uh, in medical school actually, because we don't get training in nutrition in most medical schools throughout the country. And that was a big shocker to me. And I said, wow, you know, I know that nutrition has a lot to do with our health. Why aren't we learning about it? Well, at the same time, I was actually eating really unhealthy. Because of the stress of studying, I was um, eating a ton of meat and I was drinking a ton of Mountain Dew and I was gaining weight and I was feeling horrible. And I said, man, you know, I'm doing something drastic. I should probably do something drastic in a good way. And I'm like, I hear vegetarians are healthy. So why don't I try that? So I went vegetarian from one day to the next. And over the next year of being vegetarian, I noticed that my own health conditions started to improve. Not only did I start to lose weight, but the asthma that I had since childhood started to get better. I didn't need to use my inhaler as much. My allergies got way better, and I didn't need to use allergy pills and the nasal sprays as much. And uh, I used to also have this condition called eczema, where your skin gets really inflamed, and so much so I would sometimes wake up with my sheets having little drops of blood on them from me scratching my ankles overnight. And that, that kind of started to go away too. So I said, hmm, there must be something really good about being vegetarian. And I started to really learn the research behind a whole food plant-based diet. And after about a year of being vegetarian, I met my wife. And my wife had already been vegan for three years. And we're both Mexican. She's from Michoacan. And she already knew how to make all of the Mexican food vegan. So I said, oh, my gosh, this is amazing. And so (laughs) um, it only took me a couple of months before I decided to finally uh, ditch the dairy and eggs. And I became fully vegan. And uh, since that time, uh, it's been 10 years now, I have not used a single puff of albuterol inhaler. Basically, my asthma is gone. I have not had one flare of eczema. And um, every now and then I'll get a little sneeze attack for my allergies. um, But I am no longer on chronic medications for my allergies. I also used to have high cholesterol and fatty liver. And those completely reversed as well. And they've stayed gone since going vegan. That's fascinating. So when you talk to your patients about nutrition, you can really share your own personal story, it seems. 
definitely. And, you know, a lot of times when people first hear it, um, there's a, a bit of, uh, you know, people are taken aback. Um, they kind of feel like you're maybe attacking the way that they're eating, um, but they fail to realize that you were there yourself at, at some point. Uh -huh. <laughs> almost, uh, there's almost nobody who's vegetarian or vegan that was born vegetarian or vegan. Um, now, though, um, you know, as it's become more of a popular thing and there's new products and things, you know, a lot more people, thankfully, are starting to go uh, plant-based or vegetarian or vegan even. Um, and uh, with time and with learning more and realizing that a lot of foods that you already enjoy that are healthy for you are plants, um, you realize it's not that scary of a thing. Yeah, definitely. It can be a bit of a shock, I think, to a lot of people from Hispanic and Latino backgrounds to think about cutting out meat and dairy. But yeah. <laughs> it's fascinating. You did it yourself. And it sounds like you've had many patients follow your advice as well. Right. And, you know, to that, I really go back to what is our ancestral diet as, you know, Mexicanos and indigenous communities. Our ancestral diet before the Europeans came um, really was plant-based. Um, specifically, if you talk about um, the different tribes throughout Mexico, because it wasn't just the, the Azteca, who are known as the Mexica. Um, you know, there are tons of different tribes throughout the different states uh, in, in Mexico. And when you look back, um, you know, we didn't have milk or cheese or cream or ice cream. Um, and, and we didn't have carne asada because we didn't have cows. Uh, the Europeans uh -huh. brought the cows. And so when you look at, um, you know, the Aztec Empire, basically, the uh -huh. diet was based in corn. Uh, it wasn't rice, it was corn. And um, then it was beans and squash and tomato and other vegetables and fruits and, you know, our good salsas and our guacamoles and, uh -huh. um, you know, all of this rich, uh, beautiful, you know, colorful, tasty plants. And, mm -hmm. uh, you know, even even the, the cactus, you know, the nopales, we ate all the time. Um, so when you really look and, you know, and I tell this to my patients who are Mexicano or Latino in general, um, I say, look at your ancestral diet. You know, mm -hmm. what what did we really eat? What did our bodies want? And what did what did we want from the land that's providing, you know, you hear about people talking, you know, eating locally and sustainably and seasonally, right? What is the uh -huh. earth providing for you in that region that you're living? And, uh -huh. you know, how can you get close to that and start taking off the things that, that really create inflammation in our body that were not part of our diets to begin with? And that starts to open people's mind a little bit and they say, wow, you know, yeah, you're right. You know, my, my tios and tias living on the rancho in Mexico, you know, you're right. They're like, you know, it's just, beans and corn and rice and you uh -huh. know tortillas and you know fruits and vegetables and you know if if it's a celebration yeah sure they'll they'll have some meat you know um, but it's not really a daily thing if you go back to the rancho <laughs> mm -hmm. that's great i love that so you mentioned earlier that medical school was really challenging what were some things that helped you cope with the challenges of medical school did you have certain um, spiritual beliefs or habits or um, extracurricular activities or physical activity that you did to help keep you balanced? Definitely. Um, I, I had a core group of friends who were people of color. 
Um, and that was a huge, huge uh, support mechanism for me because uh, it is very different going through medical school when no one in your family has ever been through medical school. And, you know, I had friends, um, yourself included, uh, who's families come from similar backgrounds and you know we're navigating this for the first time for our whole family it's a different pressure it's a different weight on your shoulders when you're the one that's uh, you know leading the way for your family and also um, even though you know there are you know latino doctors and people of color who are doctors there's still a lot of doors that need to be open and, you know, more people that need to be in those positions so that we can have real representation of the actual population. So having a group of close-knit friends was huge. You know, one of our friends uh, started the organization um, that helped us do migrant farm worker projects uh, where we would go and uh, help local migrant farm workers um, to provide them basic medical care. Uh, in conjunction with the church, and that was very uh, impactful and powerful, and you could see really the type of medicine that, that we were going into this for. Also, uh, LMSA, uh, Latino Medical Student Association, um, was a huge one as well, um, because you get to network with people throughout different medical schools, um, um, not only in the state, but in the country, and that was really powerful to see um, as well. You know, within our own medical school class, there was only a handful of us. And when you're in a, you know, your whole class size and there's only a handful of you, that could be a little disheartening. But then when you connect and interact and network with this vast organization and you realize that people across the country are doing this, it's really empowering and it really gives you the motivation to continue what you're doing because you know that you are part of the change. Thank you. So you graduated from medical school. Um, I know that because I graduated right alongside you, but um, (laughs) you went into residency training right after that in family medicine. Tell us about residency. What was that like? Residency was awesome. I did my residency at Kaiser Los Angeles Medical Center. And being in family medicine, everybody that was um, in the program with me and especially our attending physicians, so the doctors who are actually still our teachers and who are guiding us through the process of taking our medical degree and really forming us into the physicians that we will be, they were incredible and amazing and um, lots of representation of people of color. And throughout all of our different rotations, you know, everybody was welcoming. Um, It was a completely, you know, amazing vibe at Los Angeles Medical Center. And being right in the heart of Los Angeles, we got to see an incredible, you know, array of different medical problems. Um, And at LAMC, which is Los Angeles Medical Center, they also have many different fellowships for the residents to go into. So we got extra good training in geriatric medicine, sports medicine, and um, in community medicine. So being out on the football field, you know, for a game and being able to help with sports injuries one day, and then the next day you're in a community clinic helping, you know, the homeless. And then the next day you're in the male STD clinic in the heart of, you know, Hollywood all of these different experiences uh, working with vast different uh, populations 
was really, really empowering and impactful and, you know, definitely shaped the physician that I am today. Wonderful. And family medicine residency is three years. Is that correct? That's correct. What would you say was harder, medical school or residency? Medical school was definitely harder than residency, um, despite residency being longer hours and more responsibility. (laughs) Um, Uh At that point, you're really refining your knowledge rather than uh, gaining knowledge for the first time. Um, And, you know, so, you know, 30 hour shifts overnight, um, you know, at one point, I did, I believe, 10 weeks of 30-hour shifts every other day. Wow. And that, that was a really, you know, really trying on the, the sleep deprivation and, um, uh-huh. you know, keeping up your medical decision-making into the wee hours of the night. Um, but it, you know, definitely makes you a strong physician. And, um, yeah, I had a great experience in residency for sure. That's wonderful. We have a lot of listeners who might be in high school or in college. You mentioned that both medical school and residency are hard. What are some of the things that they can do during high school or college, especially during college, to prepare for the rigors of medical school and residency? Some of the biggest things you can do in your training, whether it's high school or if you're already in college, is really getting down good study habits and time management skills. Not only do you have to make time to actually, of course, go to the classes and take good notes, you have to make time to review those notes, and you have to make time to study on top of that with your assigned readings, with your preparation for tests, and you have to know when those tests are coming so that you can space out your studying, because a little bit of studying every day is better than trying to cram it all in at once, because when you cram it all in at once, you may do good on the test, but it actually doesn't stick, and if you're just cramming and then doing what we call a brain dump, where you just literally just put everything out on the page and then you forget it, that will actually work against you in medical school because once you get there, you realize, oh my gosh, I have to remember all of this. And all of a sudden you can't do a brain dump anymore. So getting down Mm -hmm. good study habits, studying you know, a little bit more every day rather than right before the test is huge. And the other part of time management is actually time for relaxation and time to re-energize. So having something aside from your schoolwork, having something aside from the pursuit of medicine that makes you a more well-rounded person is going to serve you incredibly well, um, not only in your current studies, and in medical school, but also as a doctor later. Because being a doctor should be part of your identity, but it should not be your whole identity. You also have many other roles to your family, to your future loved ones, you know, to your future children if you decide to have kids, and to your community. And you know, being a doctor, of course, is incredibly important and it should be a passion. Um, but what else excites you? What else do you want to do? What other things drive you as a person? And what other deeper things, you know, make you who you are? And when you find out those things and the extracurriculars and the hobbies and, you know, the family connections, that actually makes you a better doctor because you come to people not just as a scientist, you come to people as a person because ultimately 
we're not treating a lab value, we're not treating a CT scan, we're treating a human being. And when you are a more well-rounded person yourself and you are firm in who you are and what you love, you can relate deeper to others on a personal level and you can really treat the person, not just the disease. Thanks, Rhea. I love that you mentioned that. I love that you mentioned balance and the fact that our identity should not be completely wrapped up in the pursuit of a career or the practice of a career. I think I've seen personally a generational shift that doctors who trained many decades ago really saw their identity entirely as a doctor. The name residency comes from the fact that doctors many decades ago used to actually live. They used to reside in the hospital. They used to live there, basically. Yeah. And I definitely saw older doctors who, um, you know, they look at younger doctors and they're like, why don't you want to be at the hospital all of the time? <laughs> and um, younger doctors tend to be more insistent on balance and recognize the importance of all of those different domains of life, like you said. For sure. Yeah, so speaking of that, what are some of the ways now that having a career in family medicine, you obviously work really hard uh, many days of the week. What are some of the things you do in your personal life to find that balance? So I've really uh, delved into the philosophy of minimalism and simplicity. Really, it goes beyond the decluttering of your workspace or the decluttering of your closets and your home. It really goes to how you manage almost all aspects of your life. And you realize that there are a lot of things that we do that actually clutter our life. And by paring down and simplifying, it's not so much as what you're getting rid of, it's what you're making space for. So going through that process over the last seven years as a physician, I first loaded my plate way too much. And then I realized mm -hmm. I was starting to burn out a bit. So I pulled back a little bit. And when I pulled back a little bit on my hours at work, I started to fill them with uh, other activities, but then I started to burn out on my activities. Uh -huh. So I said, hmm, this is not really being balanced for me. Um, so then I really came you know, to this philosophy of minimalism and simplicity. And I said, okay, what are my actual goals and priorities and how much time am I actually spending on them? How much time do I spend with my wife? How much time do I spend with my parents and my sister and my godson? How much time do I spend playing instruments that I love to play? How much time do I spend actually putting into practice, you know, the workouts and the healthy eating? Mm -hmm. And it was not nearly as much time as I wanted to devote to those. So I started pulling back on my other extracurriculars and really made space for the things that I love. So the way that I stay balanced is by spending time with my wife and family. I spend time doing, you know, my uh, workouts and training. Um, I actually participate in Spartan races, half Ironmans, um, marathons, and other triathlons. I play a few musical instruments. My main one is trumpet. And I've been delving a bit more into guitar and piano and really getting back to um, studying those in a bit more detail um, and realizing that all of these things really fulfill me. One other thing that is huge in my life um, that I haven't mentioned yet is that I've been a traditional 
Dan Fante Azteca, Aztec dancer, since I was nine years old, and uh, I'm now 38. So we're going on almost 30 years of this. Wow. And it keeps me very grounded in who I am as a person and, uh, you know, my community and my traditions and indigenous ways. And, um, you know, that is, uh, has always been a backbone of, you know, what I do and who I am. Um, so it's really important that, you know, I continue that as well for life. That's wonderful. I love that you do that. That's such a cool thing to do. So, um, I just had two more questions. So we want listeners to have a realistic perspective of what it's like to be a doctor. You've mentioned a lot of the things you love about your job. Tell us one thing that is a little bit of a downside or one of the challenges to being a family medicine doctor. One of my biggest challenges being a family medicine physician is the time with patients, that basically limited time with patients. So uh-huh. uh, I work for a large healthcare organization and we get 20 minutes with each patient. And um, we have systems, of course, mm-hmm. in place to help us, you know, deal with all of the many things that we want to do for each patient. Um, but, you know, when we're talking about healthcare maintenance, such as cancer screenings, labs, vaccinations, um, you know, smoking cessation, so stopping smoking or alcohol counseling, um, all of those things kind of have to be tied into every visit. And it becomes difficult when you're seeing somebody, you know, who might be like 75 and have diabetes, high blood pressure, high cholesterol, kidney disease, heart disease, you know, perhaps they also had an amputation, they might be on 12 or 15 different medications, and you have all of that other stuff rolled into it. And then they also want to talk about some new shoulder pain, and you have 20 minutes. So it really Mm -hmm. is an art, um, you know, of time management and goal setting um, to really utilize that time um, to do your best you can with the patient. So I'd say that's the biggest challenge really is the the time crunch factor um, in being able to treat patients fully and holistically as we'd like to. Mm -hmm. Having been a primary care doctor myself, I can completely sympathize with that concern. I think that is one of the challenges faced by primary care physicians Mm -hmm. and specialists as well nowadays. And then lastly, What is a clinical pearl that you can share with our listeners? Just something interesting that they might not know related to health, something you maybe see often or just something that's interesting within family medicine. What's a clinical pearl that you might want to share? I would say the biggest thing that shocks people is realizing that there are about 10 different mechanisms that can cause type 2 diabetes, and most people know about the sugar and processed foods with the processed carbohydrates, Uh but that turns out not to be the primary driver for most people, because most people with type 2 diabetes, they say, you know, I'm not eating candies and cakes all day, and I'm not drinking soda all day. Why do I have diabetes, doc? And it turns out that saturated fat coming from animal products and processed foods is the main cause of type 2 diabetes and prediabetes. 
because saturated fat is toxic to our natural insulin production in the pancreas and saturated fat in muscles and tissues actually blocks the signaling pathway and makes you insulin resistant. So for some people that are becoming pre-diabetic or early diabetes, I actually have them start to cut out some animal products first, like egg yolks, because those are a huge one, um, and their sugar starts improving without even changing the amount of sugar that they're taking in. That's fascinating. I love that. I'm sure there are a lot of people that are surprised to hear that too. Oh, yeah. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Bardugo, for your time today and for sharing all about your journey. We really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me and good luck, everybody. Thank you for tuning in to our inspirational interview today. This is the first of many to come, and we hope you join us again next time. As always, if you have questions or comments for us, please drop us a line via the Contact Us page on our website at futureminoritydoctor.com. We would love to hear from you. Let us know what you like so far, what you don't, and what you'd like to hear more about in coming episodes. Also, don't forget to follow us on Facebook or Instagram. Have a wonderful day. 